Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Self-monitor your blood pressure in four easy-to-remember steps. Self-monitoring is power. Visit ManagerBP.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, the American Heart Association, and the American Medical Association, in partnership with the Office of Minority Health and Health Resources and Services Administration. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. Today we've got Chrissy Mayer. Chrissy's a comedian and host of the Chrissy Mayer podcast, and she also hosts a show on Compound Media Network, which we'll get to in one second. Uh, but she is hilarious, and she's very insightful. Uh, about our society. And she also happens to be a Trump supporter, the rare person in comedy, rare woman in particular, who actually supported President Trump, though she voted Democrat, well, Green Party to be specific, in the previous election in 2016. So how does that kind of a person, right, who is a feminist, who was a Democrat, who voted Stein, wind up not only a Trump supporter, but actually at the Capitol Hill riot, though she didn't she didn't storm the Capitol on January 6th, 2021. We're going to get into it. You'll hear a bit of her her magic uh, on some very funny bits and how she's been she's been sort of targeted for cancellation multiple times and what she says changed her way of thinking. You know, what got her politically activated the other way. So we're going to get to Chrissy in one second. First, this. All right. So you did not start off wanting to be a comedian. It's not like you were dying to go into comedy. In fact, as I read, you were dying to go into journalism. Oh, yes. <laughs> what happened there? I really wanted to be a reporter, went to college for communications. Um, and then I had my first internship at Dateline at NBC, uh, my junior oh my year God. of college. And <laughs> I got a load of Stone Phillips and uh, she, he sounded exactly off camera as he did on camera. Mm-hmm, and he mm-hmm. sounded, I was like, wow, <laughs> this doesn't seem like my speed. At-. I just found it pretty boring. <laughs> and uh, I just was like, wow, this, this can't be it. And I was, I don't know, looking back, I was really proud of myself because I was able to reach out at the time to the only female writer on Conan at the time, uh, Allison Silverman. And I was able to get myself an internship for Conan for the following year, my senior year at college. And I was so happy I did because I, once I got there, I was like, oh, wow, these are my people, you know, just talking to the writers. It's not like I was having that much face-to-face time with Conan. I was like, here's your coffee. But like, that was very exciting to me. Like, I can do Uh, this. Yeah, (laughs) I have what it takes. So should we be concerned that when I met the likes of Stone Phillips, I was like, yes, these are my people. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, I'm concerned. Maybe not him in particular, but man, he is like at a central casting for news anchor, isn't he? With like the stone, the stone, the stony jaw, like the the blockhead, the deep voice, the... He, yeah. he was born to do that. Absolutely. 
right? You were thinking, no, can't relate. This is how I was in the law, by the way. It's one of the reasons I got out of the law is I was looking around my law firm. Great, great guys. But, you know, I'm, like everyone there had two ex-wives and two mortgages and a bunch of private school tuitions to pay and they couldn't wow. leave. You know, they had the golden handcuffs on. And all I could think of was that clip from um, Legally Blonde where the where uh, a young Reese Witherspoon says she wants to go to law school. And, and the dad is like, law school? Law school is for people who are boring and ugly and uninteresting. And you're <laughs> none of those things, Button. <laughs> and then she was like, what? Like, it's hard? <laughs> that was great. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, OK, so you decide the Conan O'Brien route is much more interesting to you. By the way, like Dateline, though, that's a great, I mean, even I, with my, my bitter feelings about NBC, they're mixed. They're not all bitter. Little, little bitter. <laughs> um, I love Dateline. I love the, the team on Dateline, on cam and behind the scenes. It's, I still love that show. If you're not listening to the Dateline podcast in your spare time, you're just wasting your, your life because they're gripping Keith Morrison. Like, I love that stuff. So did you get exposed to like the murder team or what was what were you? Was that back in the day of like doing the, you know, I was exposed to mostly the the photocopying team. Uh, my job was to was to make copies of the rundowns and kind of like pass them again. A lot of retrieving coffee. I'm really good at getting coffee at this point. I've had a lot of experience <laughs> and just I was exposed to the photocopy team. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They so that, didn't really yeah, give okay. me any any major responsibilities, but it was a good overview. It was. I mean, honestly, as a college student, just to get into the building at 30 Rock is exciting. And mm -hmm. and to be able to get college credit um, for going in two days a week uh, was really it was great. It was like my first real life kind of job experience, which is far more useful than anything I did or learned in college. Yes, 100 percent. I have an intern, by the way. She's sitting here with me now. Her name is Anna. Abby is not with me for the summer. She's here. Abby's on this call and she's she's but she's at her house uh, with her kids and I'm down down the shore, as they say, for the summer. So I have an intern and uh, I'm drinking coffee, but she didn't get it for me. Right. And oh, how's it wow. going so far, Anna? It's been great. See, she loves it. She loves me. She's, <laughs> you, you can't hear any of it, but I'd let, she's it's a huge thumbs up. <laughs> Anna, clap if you're okay. No. <laughs> okay, okay. See? <laughs> Nailing it. I don't I tell you, I'm struggling this morning, Chrissy, because I, I went out last night to our friend's house and I was overserved. He made me the most giant martini I've ever seen in my life. It didn't need to be that big. Oof. You were on the Jersey Shore? Jersey Shore, baby. Jersey. Oh wow. Great. I'm doing some shows out there uh, in the next week or so. So I'm excited. I heard you say that on the 20th. I was listening to your podcast with um, Tatiana Ibrahim. Oh, yes. Yeah. She's I mean, wow. I, I was so inspired just by by talking to her. I don't have any kids. She's, but I was like, wow, she's she, crazy fearless. She was she's the one our audience may not know her by name, but they know the clip who went off on her school board. She's like, who do you think pays for those chairs you're sitting in this? How dare you yeah. insult cops? Do you know who lives in this district? And, you know, she's like, what is racism? Do you know what race I even am? Mm -hmm. She was great. And you had her on she, your show. Yeah. And I, I listened to the she whole had, thing. She had no notes. She and it was kind of better. You know, you listen to her speak and you're like, this is she's not coming up there with talking points um, or like an agenda. She just like has love for her, her children and the children in her school district. And it was really amazing. It was very inspiring. I was like, oh, wow. So few people have balls now. It's uh, when no, you see someone who like, does, it's yeah. 
bring it. And then they were like, she's like, who do you think is paying for this? And the, and the board is like, we're, these are unpaid positions, ma'am. And she's like, who paid for those chairs? Who's paying <laughs> for the lights in this room? Who paid for the pizza you ate before you got here? And like, it was, I was like, oh my God, I love her. She needs to be running something. And she is getting organized and active now as a result of that sort of, I don't know, it was like grassroots activism in the moment. Yeah, she had so many people reach out to her and she was saying like just from different countries too, of course, like Cuba and Venezuela. And and that's interesting because when I was in uh, D.C. a couple of times covering the the rallies that were going on in November, December and and then also on the 6th, those are the people who were so excited to come up and talk to me were people from Cuba, Venezuela or or their parents were from those countries. And they were mm-hmm. so concerned about the direction the country was heading in. Or anybody who's um, from the former Soviet Union. I mean, they'll they'll all those folks are like, what are you doing? Well, you're supposed to be America. There's a there's a reason we moved here. Um, It does give you a good window into where this is going. And that's actually, as I understand it, kind of what activated your I don't know if you're political, but it activated your political gene. Like you started thinking about politics in a way you never had before. So explain that. What what happened? Absolutely. I was so just like didn't care about politics. I didn't feel like politics uh, applied to me at all, especially like throughout you know college and and like in my 20s. I just again, kind of the way I thought about like <laughs> news. I was like, oh, it's for boring people. I don't know. I don't really see myself in it. And then starting around, I think probably 2018, I started to really question my political identity. Um, I met Larry Sharp, who ran as a libertarian candidate for uh, governor of New York. And I just, the, I, my whole identity started to sort of crack open. I was like, what? you know, sometimes I, w- I would take these online tests, but more through talking mm-hmm. to him, I was like, oh, wow, I, I'm not really, I, I can't identify as like, a liberal anymore because we see what was happening to the left. It was just getting more and more radicalized. Um, so that was a big step, but mainly it was seeing what was happening to free speech and how it applied to comedy. And I was like, oh no, like this, I I have to care about this because this is my future. This is, uh, and, and to see comedians not get pissed off, not get really concerned about what's happening is, is so strange because it's like, oh, wow, you're just focusing on the fact that your team is winning uh, and not the larger picture. I read this line to my husband, Doug, last night in my in my Canadian Debbie packet on you. Um, <laughs> she wasn't into politics until comedy started coming under assault from cancel culture. Then she realized, and this is in quotes, I needed to fight for the right to tell dick jokes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, they're so important. We need to laugh. I mean, I have some smart jokes, too, in there. But yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I get the point, right? It's like. Not everybody, even in comedy, is fighting for these rights, which is nuts. You'd think of all industries, the comedians would be standing up saying, what are you saying? You know, like we're the ones, we're literally the ones who get to say anything, totally irreverent. Our business is being inappropriate, right? But there's surrender even within the comedy ranks to this crazy cancel culture, free speech erosion. Absolutely. As a comic in uh, L.A. or New York, there is an obligation to align with the left and to turn away from that makes you kind of an untouchable in the industry and also a social pariah like among other most other comics. It's just the default setting is to be left. And I was like I I, when I started stand up at 26, like I was 
that was me. I was a feminist. I was like hating men. I was like doing all the right things. I was voting Democrat. Um, but my career didn't really like wasn't really exploding even then when I was doing all the right things. And I found as I just got older and I found like, what are the things that are really making me laugh? And I think at one point I decided to prioritize what I found funny over who liked me. Um, mm. And it was just a lot of a little events like, you know, other comedians being extra critical of me. Like I would do an impression of, of another comedian and then they would just try to cancel me. They'd be like, oh, this is it, it was so many little events that kind of came together and it, and it helped me develop a much thicker skin. Um, and I, I found that once I started caring more about what I found funny, like the fans kind of followed like the fans don't care as much. I think about your political leaning. They just want to laugh. And that was the biggest lesson, I think, over the last 10 years of my doing stand-up was letting go of of the the need to be liked by, you know, Comedy Central Industry or or whoever's booking Union Hall in Brooklyn or whatever venue or, uh, you know, impressing the right people, hanging out. So much of comedy is well, 10 years ago for me, I thought it was just hanging out in the right places, getting the right people to like me. And you spend so many hours just kind of hanging out at clubs or hanging out at produced shows. And it, it, so much of it feels like high school, uh, especially a lot of these comedy bookers. They feel just like the the kids who were not cool in high school. And this is their way to like get back. Mm. You know, it's like, oh, what? we booked the comedy but shows. Isn't it interesting? Like I would think... I don't know. I'm kind of thinking that a lot of comedians are probably, this is weird, but a little introverted, like a little, like slightly antisocial. And so that requirement of hanging out at the clubs and making small talk and wooing people into booking you, I I don't know. Does that come naturally or is that foreign? Because it's just the comedians I know are, they're brilliant on stage, but behind the scenes, they're not these huge extroverts. Oh, absolutely. There's so there's so many comics who are who are introverts because you're just and I don't know if it's an age thing, but the older I get, the more I'm like in my head at crowds. I have all this anxiety. I'm like, do these people hate me? Like, do these people think I'm a domestic terrorist because I was, you know, I was doing interviews at January 6th. Like, yes, like you're an insurrectionist. We'll, oh, we'll yeah. Get to that. A, <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting for the FBI to knock on my door any day now. Um, right. So it's just you worry so much about being liked. And then with the stand up comedy community, you have either the kind of introverts that you're talking about, like the socially anxious types, or you have like the overly dramatic kind of maybe they're more theater types or maybe they're more actors and they like outwardly love and need attention. They're always quote on. They're always performing for everybody around them. It's like they're trying to be hilarious even for like the guy getting their drink, you know. Um, and the introvert types kind of, you know, you see through that and you're like, oh God, I just don't want to like be around fakeness. Cause our it's our right. job to be to be honest, to be brutally honest. And that's like you know, sometimes I feel like, am I tired of the cancel culture conversation? But then I'm like, no, I'm not because comedians are not allowed a first draft of anything anymore. You look at all the arts, you know, fine artists can do sketches and throw them away. Singers can rehearse for hours in a studio and nobody ever hears it. But with comedy, it's like our first drafts are it's on Twitter. It's it's in our show on our Mm. on stage in the shows. You know, some clubs tell you not to record, but sometimes 
people sneak out and record something and that should be okay. It shouldn't be the end of you. Like if you, if you're a new comic and you have a rough patch and like, maybe you are a little bit more racial with your jokes, like that shouldn't be the end of you. You should be allowed to progress and evolve. Um, and And even, I don't know. It's like, Nothing should be off limits for comedians. That's one of the reasons why Dave Chappelle is so brilliant. He'll he'll do it all. And you feel totally uncomfortable, like, oh, my God, he's making jokes out of school shootings. Right. <laughs> it's like and you're like, but I'm laughing. It, but if there's some relief in it, you know, like the most horrific things you can think of. Somehow he finds a way to make you like feel lighter in the moment. That's a gift. But. But not everybody feels that way. Okay, so two examples. There's Seth Rogen, who told Good Morning Britain that comedians should stop complaining about cancel culture and just accept when a joke has, quote, aged terribly. And then Cat Williams, who is an Emmy Award winning comedian, uh, he uh, does not believe that there's a problem with cancel culture. And here's what he said. Listen, some of these things are for the benefit of everything. Nobody likes the speed limit, but it's necessary. Nobody likes the shoulder of the road, but it's there for a reason. Mm-hmm. My, my point is, um, weren't all that extremely funny back when they could say whatever they wanted to say. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of the day, there's no cancel culture. Cancellation doesn't have its own culture. I don't know what people we think got canceled that we wish we had back. If all that's going to happen is we have to be more sensitive in the way that we talk, isn't that what we want anyway? If these are the confines that keep you from doing the craft God put you to, then it probably ain't for you. Mm. We need to be more careful in the way that we talk. No. Who are you to tell me that? It's so easy for Cat Williams. He's he's been famous and kind of uncancelable for a while. And it's like, I don't want to hear what any household name has to say on cancel culture. It's like, shut up. You've made it. You're good. You have enough money. Same thing with Seth Rogen. I think he's done stand up once, like maybe once. And you look at all of Seth Rogen's movies and there are so many scenes where he tells so many inappropriate jokes i feel like sometimes these celebrities they'll make these statements to come at a head at ahead of it you know that they're trying to like put up Mm. like you know a cushion so that they can't be canceled you know they're like oh i'm gonna i'm gonna say it first like i'm gonna acknowledge it before somebody can come out with one of my clips from years ago but it's like you can't listen to anybody who's a household name when it comes to cancel culture, because it's like, it's not fair. It's like, you've made it. And if you slip up, you've got a team of people to help you make it right, to help you get through it. And you're not going to ruin, you know, all your future sources of, of income. And I, I like, I'm kind of, I believe with parts of what Kat Williams said, and I, I, I disagree with parts of it too. Like, yeah. Okay. You should be able to do your job as a comic. You shouldn't have to like use every cuss word. You shouldn't be, you know, I especially believe with female comics, you shouldn't be super graphic and in, in talking about like your genitals, right? Like you shouldn't, you should be able to make people laugh without cursing or being super graphic or being super gross. So I, I, I believe with that part, but he compares comedy to like the speed limit it's and that's not a fair comparison it's not it's not the speed limit like words aren't as dangerous as a speeding car words only have the the danger or the value that you give to them um especially when you have so many 
black comics use use the n-word they're throwing it away it's like well they can say it but like if a white person says it they they need to be completely shut down so well the, the fact that we're listening to seth rogan on anything right like he's, <laughs> yeah the, people do use his social commentary they re- refer to it quite a bit this is the same guy who remember this story paul ryan's sons saw him at an event and asked if they could do a photo with him and, and their dad and he's like, oh, I saw Paul Ryan, you know, as the dad walk. And I was like, no way, no way. I hate what you're doing to this country. And Paul Ryan, like a very milk toast Republican. Yeah. Um, and that's how hateful this guy is. Seth Rogen hates anybody who's not of the far left. And yet he's the one who's out there like, look, you know, acknowledge when you've crossed a line. Right. Who died and made you the arbiter of that? If you get to decide everything, Stephen Colbert lives, Jimmy mm-hmm. Kimmel lives. Right. But probably Joe Rogan has to go away. Uh, anybody who doesn't who takes risks that, you know, don't that, that don't align with his politics. Absolutely. It's like you're it, it's it's a it's a question of they're making it like they're comparing taste to standards of, of talent. Like just because it's not your cup of tea doesn't mean that person is not extremely talented. And that's what I hate. Like a joke is a, it should be allowed to live if even one person laughs, you know, and that's Mm -hmm. what sucks about cancel culture. It gives the offended few the power to dictate content for many. And just because Mm -hmm. the, the noisy offended few people are like, Oh, we got to shut this down. We got to take this off. We got to take this person out, out of the running. They can't create content anymore. It's like, well, there could have been tens, hundreds, thousands of people who really were quietly enjoying that comic or that performer. They just now they really won't say it when they see the person come under fire. You've had it happen to you a couple of times and we haven't been officially canceled. Um, (laughs) But what what would you say you've done that is the most controversial thing like that led to the most blowback? Oh, God. Yeah. Okay. Biggest thing. Let's see what when the pandemic first came out last year, I made uh, Gal Gadot put together a compilation of her and other celebrities and they were singing Imagine because I guess I thought it was absurd. That would bring all of us together and calm us so down. Absurd. It's <laughs> so cringy. It was the biggest it's so cringy, cringy thing I saw. It's exactly what I said before. Like when you're a celebrity, it's like you're kind of lifted. Uh, greatness comes from struggle, but with success and definitely celebrity, you risk losing that struggle, which is why I don't think anybody should listen to anybody like celebrities when it comes to cancel culture. Maybe Ricky Gervais and Adam Carolla, like they've Mm -hmm. kind of held their, um, you know, their love, their values when it comes to that. Yes. Yeah. But when you're still fighting for the little guy. Yes. Yeah. They're still in touch with the little guy and the working person. I think when you cannot risk losing your cushy lifestyle, that becomes more important than speaking the truth and saying what needs to be said. And mm. when we saw with these celebrities, that compilation singing, imagine we're like, oh, they're so out of touch. So I was like, why don't I do a little compilation with me and my quote celebrity friends? I don't have celebrity friends. It's just all other comedians. <laughs> and uh, we all sang a line to Kung Fu fighting. And I said, oh, you can you can say Kung Fu or not, because Trump was saying it. It was a trending hashtag. Kung right, Fu it was fighting. a thing. It was a thing. So we just I just put together pretty quickly a compilation of that, put it out. And uh, I think Steven Crowder did a version of Kung Fu Fighting, too. It was just this is what comedians do. You, you kind of a lot of us have a, maybe this similar idea. And then it's just whoever can put it out <laughs> quickest right. and uh, ended up getting so much blowback. Like the woke Asian community came after me. There were people online who thought that I had written the lyrics to that song. I was like, you people are so dumb. Like this song's been out <laughs> since the 70s. What are you talking right, about? 
It's a great song. Yeah. And they thought I was being anti-Asian. I'm like, no, the point is, is that I'm being kind of like anti-celebrity. Um, but also mo- think- it's like, OK, is it is it inappropriate? Yeah. But comedy shouldn't be held to those standards. Comedy is politically incorrect. Comedy shouldn't be woke. Comedy is almost designed to offend. If you want to be offended, you could go to any comedy club in the nation and find plenty of reasons to be. Don't look to comedians to make you feel better about our dialogue with one another being as close to the Queen's English and behavior as possible. Yeah, it's supposed to be silly and goofy. And uh, that's like a, a kind of a I think the biggest problem is like it, it used to be if you wanted to go and see comedy and you loved comedy, you'd have to go to a building, you have to go to a club like 80s, 90s, 2000s. That was the way. Right. And then yeah. once social media, once our amazing cell phones put comedy and content creators in everybody's pocket. Well, now everybody gets a say. And if you're not somebody who would like comedy or has a good sense of humor, it's like, well, well, now you kind of have the power to have a say over comedians, which is great. Mm-hmm. Everybody should have a say, but it's like people who maybe you don't have don't to appreciate, listen to them. Exactly. People like, who don't appreciate and, and, comedy. And you shouldn't. Exactly. It's like, well, now it's like, it's right here in our faces. It, it comes up this person's trending or, or this TikTok video is trending and get to see it. And it's like, well, you may not have sought that comedy out, but now it's come to you and you're like, Ugh, I don't like it. Up next, we're going to talk about how Chrissy and a little Tim Dillon uh, were dancing together as little tots in Long Island. Uh, you'll love the story. And then we're going to talk about how she wound up voting for Donald Trump. Uh, that's in one minute. First this. So do you think that social media has been a force for good or like a net good or net bad for comedy? I think I think absolutely net good because um, it used to be or I used to be like afraid to ever move out of the city. Like I moved in uh, with my boyfriend like four years ago and I thought it was going to be like the end of my career. I was like, I can't move out of Queens. Like I had lived in Brooklyn. I had lived in um Williamsburg, I had lived in the story of Queens and, and uh, I moved up with him in, uh, in, up in Westchester. I'm like, ah, I'm done. I have, to, I have to be close to the city. I was so worried about my career. But, mm-hmm. and now you fast forward to 2021. Now it's an asset to live away from the city. People are moving out of New York entirely. People moving out of cities. And uh, well, you there's can have so much thr- material in Westchester. Oh, <laughs> I lived there God, for a little yeah. while. It's such an yeah. interesting, like, group of people and way to live. It's very, it's sort of white bread, I will say. Um, It's like, there's sort of an MO where most of the guys work on Wall Street. Most of the women don't work outside of the home. And um, as Doug put it, there was where we lived in this one small town, it seemed to be a competition. Every party was a competition to see how, how much clothes the women could take off, right? Like how little they (laughs) could cover. Yeah. And when arriving at the party, it's like everything's an excuse to wear your, you know, sexy kitten costume or whatever. Like, oh, oh, my okay. God. Yeah. And I was like, born and raised on Long Island, too. And I and I heard you interview Tim Dillon. And he and I actually went to the same like little kids uh, dance class together when we were like very, no. very young. It's insane. I wish I, I had I need to find these pictures, this. Megan. I had to find these pictures because it's like. <laughs> He was like he was like this little blonde thing. And he was very, very good. He was like very passionate and good at dance. He had so much spunk. He was I was like, oh, he he was like a born performer. And to, and I, to see that he's grown up to the Tim Dillon we all know today is like blows me away because he was just like this spunky little 
turn the beat around. He would be like nailing the steps. <laughs> <laughs> that and, is spectacular. Uh, and so like, yeah, anyone from Long Island knows. Yeah, it's all like cops, teachers, yep. firemen, you know, and there's a lot of funny people who came out of Long Island, you know, um, like Amy Schumer. Well, she used to be funny, but um, yeah, David Tell. Um, I think it was all the chemical testing that happened on Long Island all those years ago. <laughs> I think that's we've created a lot of funny people that way. Something went wrong. Well, so <laughs> so have you I mean, what's it let's, what's it like for you in Westchester? Because it's I mean, anthropologically, it must be very interesting. Well, yeah, it's like I'm renting right now like that. We're we're kind of like looking to to buy a house. But the market's been so crazy um, the last year. I think it's starting to calm down a little bit because I just we weren't at a point where we we're going to like we're willing to like overpay um, yeah. tens of thousands of dollars on something, but we're going to keep looking. And the best part about it is that you can have a thriving comedy career and you don't have to live in a, in a big city or even a comedy city. It's, um, you can, it's like, you just get to know, you have to know social media. You have to know how to clip your, uh, whether it's a little bit of time on stage or doing characters or, I mean, that's something I could definitely always spend more time doing, but I think, you know, doing this, doing my longer form interview podcast as where I've put most of my energy. And I have another show on compound media called the wet spot, which is a sex dating relationship, like advice panel show. So who do people call in on that? I did. I did see that. I confess that one I haven't listened to. Um, but it, are you like a modern day Dr. Ruth on that? Or what's the story there? Oh gosh. Yeah. That's what we're trying to be. It's uh, yeah. People can call in it's on compound media and I kind of wanted it to be like how early Howard Stern was where he would have like uh, comedians and like porn stars in. And sometimes like, you know, some, sometimes somebody will like flash their boobs or like do something crazy with their body. And it's just like, I mean, <laughs> sometimes it's People like are Googling it right now. Yeah. Sometimes, <laughs> it can get, sometimes it's NC 17, but it's, it's mostly just fun. And uh, people call in looking for advice and, uh, or sometimes we'll just talk about like whatever, like sex dating relating topics are this, kind of this like could be a trending. lucrative lane for you because that girl who hosts call <laughs> her daddy that podcast just got paid 20 million dollars a year by wow. spotify yeah she what? was with barstool sports her, her podcast wow. and um dave portnoy kind of found her and gave her her start and she had the other co-host with her then they had a meltdown and the other gal left yes and, i remember um, that alex cooper yeah that's her name so she kept doing it herself and just signed a deal with Spotify. I guess she's leaving Barstool. 20 million. Wow. So there is money in talking about the sex acts. Stay with it, Chrissy. Don't what give up. What the hell? I have to dye my hair blonde. I need to like work out a little bit more. It's crazy to me. Like these people who blow up and you're like, why? I know. I don't, I don't get it. I don't I don't totally get it either, but there's a market for it. And she was just apropos of nothing. There was a bizarre video of this gal circulating last week where she let her dog lick her tongue and she put it in, she put it oh, on boy. social media. And it was the weirdest thing that people accused her of bestiality. <laughs> Our world you know what is it is with so her? Weird. She's mm. like the kind of girl like 
girls want to be here and guys like want to bang her. And I think that's, you know, she probably has like a lot of fun sex stories. I listened to a couple episodes, but I was like, I can't, I can't do it anymore. I have can't to say, I do, it. Not, I do not want to be her. And not, not even <laughs> okay, a little. Good. Though I <laughs> applaud her success. So I hundred percent, but I'd certainly rather my own daughter go a different route. Uh, she's only 25 years old though. So she's killing it. Oh. She's kind of like yeah. oh, a yeah. Kardashian making a bunch of money at a very young age by putting something kind of superficial out there. Although sex is part of everybody's life for the most part and, uh, and worth discussing. And I thought, you did a you did a bit. I'll tee it up for you on um, certain positions that you addressed, and one of them was your objection <laughs> to doggy style. Oh yeah, I hate it. <laughs> Why? What's what's the story? It's 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 uh, it's very impersonal. Like I know it feels. I'm not gonna get so graphic. I know it feels good for the guy, but it's like, come on, like it could be anybody there in front of you. It's like it's hard to have a conversation. It's like you. What are you gonna turn around and be like? Are you? Do you even know? Are we going to your mom's for Fourth of July? It's like <laughs> you can't look somebody in the face. It's um. You, you could both be on your any position where you could both be on your phone and the other person wouldn't know is not a good position. <laughs> I was like, hey, do you see the news about Vladimir Putin? Who's talking yeah, in that moment? Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to be face to face. Hey, watch where you're Putin that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like, so you have an alternative. Then, What's the alternative? The alternative is, you know, there's you could look somebody in the eye, you know, old fashioned missionary. But I think the future is is a is picking an animal that is cuter, that's a little bit more respectable. I think maybe we should have sex like a cat, you know, kitty style. And I don't know if you've ever tried this, Megan. If not, you should. This is what you should do tonight. Uh, kitty style. It's uh, I'll go through it really quickly. It's it's where you and your guy are like having sex. Everything's going great, you know, but then all of a sudden one of you just pff, runs away suddenly and that's it. You're just you saw something more interesting. <laughs> I'm going to give it a try. And, uh, give it a try. Give it a try. And uh, getting back to your other point when you're talking about um, like my sort of process of uh, being anti-woke. And uh, finding myself, a big part of that was getting a show on Compound Media because it's uh, Anthony Cumia's network, and he was already, I'm I guess, kind of Anthony. a pol- pol- yeah, already kind of a polarizing figure. People, some people love, a lot of people love him, some people hate him. Uh, he he's kind of more on the right with his politics. So unfortunately, like you get kind of stereotyped. Like as soon as I got a show on Compound Media, people are like, oh, you're you're far right. And it's so funny, like because of that default, I said earlier is that default is to be on the left in comedy. A a comic who voted for Trump and is like vocal about voting for Trump is seen as, quote, more political than a comic Mm. who voted for Biden or who is like out Biden or Obama or whatever. And just the same thing. It's it's such BS. And if like if you go to a Trump rally, you're seen as like radical and political. But if you go to a BLM rally and you light something on fire, it's like you're a good person that you're a good person. And that's normal. So once I got the show on compound media, like it, and it was it was pretty crazy because before I got that show, I spent six years. I hosted a show at the Stonewall Inn, which is a New York City uh, LGBT landmark. It was the site of the Stonewall riots in 1969, like very important spot. I ran a show there, put so much of my own money into advertising. I would uh, constantly be scouting like up and coming LGBT talent. I would get heavy hitters from the seller to come in and just 
it was a great show, great lineup. So I did that for six years. So I, I would have certain people kissing my ass, being nice to me. And as soon as I stopped doing that show and started doing compound media, it's like, you see what people think of you right away. And you see how selfish so many comedians are. Like they're ultimately just mm. out for themselves. And they'll, I mean, I had a very good friend call me like a conservative mouthpiece. <laughs> uh, and you just have to step back and be like, oh, wow, this is okay. People show you who yeah. they are. And uh, I started covering the the rallies. First, I went in November, then I went December, and then I was the there Trump on the rallies. 6th. Cause, yeah, the Trump rallies. Because I was like, I know the media is not being honest and not showing us. And I was very curious. I'm like, you know what? Let me meet these MAGA people. Let me see if they're all like redneck hillbillies, morons, like the media is telling us that they are. And I get there and I was so blown away. It was the most diverse people. Um families, you know, all, all colors, all ethnicities. And like I said before, the people who were so excited to come up to me and do little interviews were the people from like, you know, or whose parents were from Cuba or Venezuela mm-hmm. and just so the passion and love for this country. And salt I, of the earth, salt of the earth. Me away. It, it's, it yeah. doesn't tend to be the elite media, whatever crowd, with the glasses <laughs> at the end of their noses. And that's not a bad thing. Yeah, so it was. I you, learned so, you start so going much. To the rallies, and, and then people start looking at you like you're Donald Trump Jr. And but you, I mean, you voted for Trump. I think you might be the only person in America who voted for Jill Stein oh, in 2016 and Trump in 2020. What was, what what happened? <laughs> what? But was that because of the political awakening and the cancel culture and all that stuff? Because I think a lot of us have gone through that. I think 2016, I was like halfway out. I was like a little chick starting to crack out of an egg. I was like not uh, fully on board with Trump. Didn't understand him. Didn't appreciate him yet. But I knew that Hillary Clinton was not the answer. And I was like starting to break out of like my sort of feminist mold there. So I was like, I, I was not getting a good feeling from Hillary. I had no idea like how evil and horrible she is like I do now. But I just was like, yeah, I'm not sold on either one. So, ugh. I went with Jill Stein. Not, not a great choice, but I made it. I got here eventually. And uh, and so, you know, I didn't get any real blowback from going to the November rally or December. But with January, I went because I was like, let me just see if they cover it January 6th, the way they covered November and December. You know, they would do the mainstream media would do like an early morning flyover uh, like 6 a.m. before anybody really assembled, like, oh, look, there's 40 people here. This is a non-event. So I was really curious to see how they would cover it. Um, and I remember I just, you know, again, I'm doing interviews. I'm just sort of man on the street, had my camera out. Uh, it was like so, so cold. And it, it just bothers me because I was there and anybody who was there on the 6th is is like blown away with how it like inaccurate the media coverage is. It's like, don't at this point, it's like, I don't want to listen to anybody's thoughts on the 6th unless unless they were like there, like physically oh, there, because okay. it just so was not a big deal. Like I have this tweet. Oh, it was after I forget his name. He this guy like donated his suit to the Smithsonian, the suit that he yes. wore on January 6th. And I had this tweet. <laughs> where I was like, wow, I think there was more carnage at my first period, which I know is a horrible, <laughs> but I was like, I was making Andy a point. Kim. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Andy, relax. As a symbol of hope and resilience oh, and God. a story of light on one of the darkest days in our democracy. Stop he donated it. it to the Smithsonian because he'd been wearing it in a, a photo of him cleaning up the Capitol after the fact. And, you know, now the Smithsonian has apparently accepted it. So, yes. Okay. So I see your point. 
about the carnage. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's horrible. Like, like Ashley Babbitt was murdered. Should not have happened. But like for, for a group of people who could have come fully armed to the Capitol, they didn't. It was extremely peaceful and chill. And most of us didn't even know what was happening until like hours later, until like four or five o'clock when we were leaving. And I remember on my on my way when we were walking to the Capitol, because it was nothing Trump ever said. It wasn't like in charge. It wasn't like a scene at a Braveheart where he was like telling us what to do. Dying in your uh, bed. Yeah. Yeah. Years from now. He, there was a schedule of events like there was with every rally. You know, a little graphic circulates before you go there. Like, okay, uh, this night is this person speaking here and tomorrow it's, you know, it was planned. So I remember the night before it was like there were speakers happening in one area. And then the morning of it was like, okay, we're all going to meet. What is it called? The president's the ellipsis or something. Uh, someone was, you know, we had been out there since like 8 a.m. And then Trump was supposed to speak at 11. He didn't start speaking till 12. So all of us were getting cold and we we're like, all right, we can't really stay in here this whole speech. So the next March point, the next pre-planned uh, event was like, OK, we're all going to march to the Capitol. And it was nothing like him going charge. You know, it was just that was the next place we were supposed to go to. And I remember I tweeted out um, just a little bit of video and it was me saying like, all right, marching to the Capitol or something like that. And one of these New York City like woke comedy bookers took it retweeted it with a comment saying like, I don't know what comics in LA are doing, but here in New York, they're storming the Capitol. And this was a woman like I don't work with. I'm not friends with. It's like they use it to, to virtue signal. It's like, you don't even know what was going on. Like you don't even know that it was like mostly the, the most chill thing ever. It was like people had blankets and picnics and families and Hilarious costumes, but the faction turned, and there's no question the media represented this as so much worse than it actually was. But you know, we we've all seen the video of people like screaming in the face of cops, being totally disparaging, and you know, defecating on the floor of the U.S. Capitol. That's crazy. (laughs) Lawmakers were understandably afraid, you know, not like AOC. I need therapy for the rest of my life. Afraid, but I could understand it, and I didn't like seeing it at all. It's that's our capital. Get the hell out of there. Have some respect. Don't threaten the cops. Screw you. You know, the the MAGA crowd is supposed to be pro cop. You know, and you don't get in their faces and yell at them and say that you know all this shitty stuff, which I heard, you know, with my own ears. That's but crazy. That yeah, doesn't I didn't mean see any of that. Yeah. That doesn't mean that's what the entire crowd was there for, intended to do. So they got tarred by the actions of like some losers who went a different way. And then the media did what it does, which is any bad behavior gets gets attributed to the entire group of Trump supporters, of not course. just in, in on the Capitol, but in the country. Right. Remember, after that, it was like, you're a MAGA supporter, you're a, you're a Trump supporter, you're on the banned list. It, it wasn't just like, did you storm the Capitol? It was like, if you voted for Trump, you're banned. You're you're not getting oh, book yeah. deals. You're not getting anything. It took less and less. It's like, oh, do you own cargo shorts? Well, you're on the list now. It's like, do you have an American flag in your? Is that car? a tell? Cargo shorts? <laughs> I, I didn't. I, the flag, I know, but cargo, no. Yeah, it takes less and um, less. Yeah, of course, it was horrible. Like you know, a few people really did like ruin the event for everybody else. And there, there is footage of, of like MAGA and Trump supporters like trying to stop people from getting yep. in cops faces trying to like take I've seen that you know, too. I had this friend who was another independent journalist he said that he saw somebody like passing up a sledgehammer and then somebody else took that and gave it to a cop because they were like actively trying to stop destruction so yeah I'm not going to say like nothing happened but 
Um, it wasn't an insurrection. It wasn't the way no. people have portrayed it. Like, and, and I understand the, the that's based in part on just the overall messaging from Team Trump at the time, which was, I didn't lose. We have to fight. Mike Pence <laughs> should take it back. And, you know, mm -hmm. sub subverting the democratic process with, you know, stuff that was unsupported in Trump. So like Mike Pence did not have the authority to hand in the election and he misled people. So they're tying together the political rhetoric with what we saw, you know, with people storming. And it misses, of course, like all these news stories, any nuance. Like, what about the people who weren't there at all for that? And we've We've talked to folks who were there as well on this show. But here's mm -hmm. what I wanted to get your reaction to. Matthew Dowd, who is one of the biggest losers on Twitter, and that's saying something. <laughs> he used to work for George W. Bush. Wow, have has his life changed? Okay, he, whatever you think of George W. Bush, the reason I will always have a soft spot in my heart for him is him right after 9-11 and how, what a strong leader he was and how amazing he was. We can talk about Iraq and all that. I get it. But in those days after 9-11, I think most of us fell in love with him and he, the Matthew Dowd worked for him. Now Matthew Dowd has gone on to be a political commentator at ABC news. No longer. He was running their politics unit no longer. And, um, he's just gone far left. He's on with joy Reid all the time. And he's like a Nicole Wallace type. And here he was just the other day on with joy Reid talking about the impact of the Capitol riot. Listen to him to me. Though there was less loss of life on January 6th, January 6th was worse than 9-11 because it's continued to rip our country apart and give permission for people to pursue autocratic means. And so I think we're at a much worse place than we've been. And as I've said, I think to you before, I think we're in the most perilous point in time since 1861 in the advent of the Civil War. I do, too. Well, you're a couple of idiots. What a moron. You yeah, it's like that. They're intimidated and so threatened that like the American people are taking back their voice and like being heard. And and th I think they're just upset, like, oh, all the all the censorship. But yeah, it's still not enough. People are still going to going to let their voices be heard. Was worse than 9-11. Wow. 3000 people died. Firefighters, cops, children who were on those planes that got turned into bombs, into missiles who must have been terrified for their lives as they went into those buildings. Fuck you, Matthew Dowd. Seriously. Honestly, I, yeah, it's, it's fuck you. I'm saying it too. <laughs> it's infuriating. And Joy Reid too. It's infuriating. It's so disrespectful to the Americans who lost their lives, who were forced to jump from the 90th floor. Uh, it, you know, ch yeah. having to choose between being burned to death by jet fuel and, and jumping to their deaths. I'm. It makes me so angry. That kind yeah. of talk, fine. Right. Like somehow he's considered a patriotic American. Um, I, yeah, I just it's find like, like, relax, this, it's like, and it's an insight. It's an insight yeah. in like who's running media today. Right. So out of touch. It's so out of touch. It's like, yeah, you don't have crews and crews of people for like weeks and months looking through the rubble of the Capitol building, looking for bodies. It's like the, to compare mm. it to that is like is so out of touch. Yes. It's like it's almost like the Holocaust. Just don't compare things to it. You know, like, yeah, just some exactly. some events are so uniquely awful. You, you just don't compare to them, you know, and and I just feel like at right now you look back at like the the men and women who have served our country, who went over to Afghanistan, who went over to Iraq, who sacrificed blood and treasure to fight those wars. Like and all of them have to look at this moron and Joy Reid, the other moron, sit on television and say, oh, no. You know, I, as much as I didn't like the crapping on the floor of the Capitol, it, it, to listen to that guy say somehow that was worse. 
because it divided us. Guess what? That wasn't the event that divided us. That wasn't the event. It's been yeah. events going back for years now, including very much during the Obama presidency. And mm -hmm. and certainly the Iraq war was divisive and so on. But there's no accountability by this guy for his role or the role of the media in any of it. It's just MAGA, right? Yeah. And they, a lot of these people in media, they're like just drunk with power. It's like they know that there are so many brainwashed people who are going to be glued to their TV and whatever they hear will be what they repeat to people. And I would say even to combine all the BLM, uh, you know, like demonstrations and the carnage from that, like even all that together is not anywhere close to comparing it to 9-11. So to compare just the mm -hmm. six to it is is really insane. And by the way, like when he talks about it's given people permission to pursue autocratic means, it was Barack Obama who took out his pen and his phone and started issuing edicts that he had no business issuing that he himself said he couldn't issue before he then went on to issue them, for example, mm. on immigration. And, you know, you can go back and check the record on Barack Obama's executive actions that went beyond anything we'd seen uh, long before Donald Trump took office. And so like when he talks about autocratic means, by the way, Trump then left office, right? A couple of weeks after this, Joe Biden took over. So who is he talking about? What are the autocratic yeah. means he's talking about? Because Trump's push to overturn the election failed. It failed thanks to the courts, thanks to what happened on January 6th with the lawmakers that day. So I'm not sure exactly what he's objecting to. But the fact that these people get a platform and talk about this so irresponsibly infuriates me. Um, OK, yeah. so moving on from your insurrection is past. <laughs> Oh, right. And so, of course, like the, the folks, uh, you know, they don't realize what was going on, why people were there. They just I don't know if they're just dumb or like in the early days, they just figured anybody who's in D.C. on that day is, is a horrible person. Right. They think I was there to shit on Pelosi's desk. It's like, no, right. there are people there just covering the event, like from a kind of independent media standpoint. But then like the rumors fled and I had like I guess I had a campaign going of people reaching out to my Facebook friends. I'm like, who even uses Facebook anymore? But I had folks reaching out to my Facebook friends saying, oh, just letting I'm just letting you know your Facebook friends with Chrissy Mayer. You should probably unfriend her because, you know, she was at the Capitol on the 6th. Like, oh, it, it's so sad, like people spending their time trying to get it settled <laughs> down at all since then. Because I, I feel like tempers were so hot right then in the, in the aftermath of the election and Trump's claims and all that. I don't know. It was like no Trump will ever be seen in public or listened to ever again after this. And mm -hmm. now I think people are realizing wrong. So do you, has that settled at all in your own life since then? It has settled down. And the friends that I've lost, it, it, like it burns at first, but then you're like, oh, anybody who's going to unfriend you over this, even without a conversation or a discussion is not a real friend and not somebody who was going to be there for you anyway. Um, so it's just been like a lot of life lessons. And the, the people I've met, um, you know, the, fr the, the friends I've made and the kind of, I guess, other influencers or other independent journalists I've met, uh, in the last year or six months, it's, it's, I've, I've gained far more than I've lost. And when we talk Good. about like independent and new media, you know, it's like, I'm friends with a lot of these guys that are kind of on the forefront that are getting more views than CNN. It's very exciting to, to mm -hmm. know and associate and be friends with these people. Um, and it's, I, I learned so much from them. Are there secret Trump fans or secret Republicans, secret conservatives, or just not even any of that? Like, I, I wouldn't call myself any of those things, really. I'm just, uh, my politics are generally center right, but I'm on the side of reason and I'm totally opposed to cancel culture and wokesters. 
So do you, mm-hmm. are there people like that in comedy who are kind of underground who, you know, you're discovering? Oh, absolutely. There are people, my DMs are full of comics who are like kind of afraid to, to come out. And uh, they, I think that's like, I'm so outspoken about these topics that they feel comfortable, like coming, coming yeah. to me and be like, oh, is this really true? Like, I just did a, an interview with a comic who, who finally he he was very woke and on the left for for a long time and he's like I, I had enough like I have these agents telling me that sorry it's a hard time for white guys um Ugh. just so blatantly in his face and you know getting kicked off of podcasts run, run by lesbians because they're not allowing straight white men on anymore just like blatant discrimination and he's like yeah I'm done I think I'm done and he's like I was raised by gay guys but I'm like I'm done I'm not going to even pride parades anymore because it's like I have to focus on me and and the people who are supporting me and want me to thrive and that is not anybody on the left um we had had, uh, Ryan Long on the show you know him oh yeah I love Ryan yeah and he was he's Canadian and he was talking about how and he was killing it you know and he but he was told repeatedly I think it was by Canadian Broadcasting uh I'm obviously you're not getting a show because you know you're a white man there's no (laughs) so it's you know he's like oh, okay okay right so that's that's what they're up against it's not just leveling the playing field it's you're you nothing no you'll be getting nothing because of the color of your skin and your your male parts yeah and you can tell like people on the left are scared and that's why it's like oh if you're a white person who's obsessed with diversity well then you can stay so people know that and they go okay well i got to be the the white person who's championing diversity uh, at every turn. And then I can be the white person who, who gets to stay and gets mm-hmm. to keep my job or whatever. It's really well sad. But I, think it's it out of fear. Like, I just had Jason Whitlock on the show. We were talking about the Rachel Nichols thing on ESPN. You know, she's the, this broadcaster who was like, yes, diversity, equity, inclusion, wokester. And then it turned out that they wanted to give a black reporter her job hosting the <laughs> NBA finals. And she was caught on tape saying, not my job. Don't come for me. You, you, Yes, I'm pro diversity. Wow. Find someplace else to do it. It's like, of course, not over okay. here. That's great. I love when that right. happens. Yeah, but my my DMs are full of people who are kind of in the closet about it, and and uh, I just, you know, time will tell. And and as they kind of get kicked out of the woke boat, they'll, and it's it's never anybody in the center or on the right who is kicking anybody out. It's like I don't understand. And I I listened to that episode with Ryan Long and. And he said, like, that's how you can tell who's in charge of the culture. Like, look at the people who are kicking folks out. I don't think that's true. I think uh, I think the fans are the only thing that matters and and focus on finding whatever you think is funny. And that was mm. the biggest uh, the sense of freedom I got when I realized, like, it's all about the fans. It's all about, like, just being true to yourself. Put out there what you find funny and and people will gravitate and find you. And don't worry about impressing anybody else or fitting into any group. Up next, Chrissy's fight with another famous Chrissy, Chrissy Teigen, how that came about and how it led to people wondering whether Chrissy Mayer is involved in Q, QAnon. So we'll talk about that. Uh, And then we will get into Greta Turnberg and Chrissy's Chrissy's take on her. Stay tuned. But first, I want to bring you a feature we have here on the MK Show called Sound Up. And that's where we play you a soundbite that we think you need to hear. In the news this week uh, is Michael Avenatti. Remember him? They refer to him as celebrity lawyer. Uh, mm, Challenge. Well, he's going to prison. He was sentenced this past Thursday to 30 months in prison. 
He represented Stormy Daniels. You remember he became a darling of the media because she was going after Trump and he was saying he was going to bring Trump down. And then his somehow his star got elevated and he was just given a complete pass by everyone in the media. Almost everyone. We'll get to in a second. Now he's going to prison. He in February of 2020 was convicted on three counts of threatening is basically extortion. He threatened to publicly accuse Nike of illicitly paying amateur basketball players. Uh, And uh, Nike realized that it was being extorted. He was demanding millions of dollars. He wanted um, that Nike to pay his client, a youth basketball coach, 1.5 million to pay Avenatti and another lawyer, 12 million and guarantee another 15 and 25 million in payments for some sort of an investigation. Anyway, Nike goes to the FBI to say creepy porn lawyer is extorting us and they got him dead to rights. And so he was found guilty in February 2020. And um, when sentencing him, the judge, U.S. District Court Judge Paul Gardeffi said, and I quote, Mr. Avenatti's conduct was outrageous. He had become drunk on the power of his platform or what he perceived his platform to be. Avenatti stood there crying, choking up. Oh, they always cry when it's their neck on the line, pausing in his remarks and saying uh, something to the effect of Twitter and TV mean nothing, Your Honor. I betrayed my own values, my friends, my family, myself. I and I alone have destroyed my career, my relationships, my life. I feel no sympathy for him. Um, He still faces trials by on two additional, by the way, on two additional criminal indictments. One over allegations that he defrauded Stormy Daniels, who fired him, remember, and another for allegedly defrauding other clients of his law firm. Lovely guy. Lovely. Well, anyway, the reason we're bringing this to you is because it's another example of the disgusting fawning media. When anybody says anything that's anti-Trump or anti-Republican, frankly, he was given a pass on what appeared to be troubled allegations that Stormy Daniels was making against Trump, right? Everybody put him on just to say, oh, Trump did it. How bad is he? He's awful. Well, when I was on NBC, I put on Trump's lawyer who I beat up. It was fun. I liked the guy actually, but I beat him up pretty well. And then I put on Avenatti and I beat that guy up too. And I'll get to that in one second. Washington Free Beacon does this great montage of the fawning media when it came to this guy, this now convicted criminal. Listen. He's Donald Trump's worst nightmare, Michael Avenatti. Joining us once again is Michael Avenatti. Let's bring in Michael Avenatti. Michael Avenatti. Michael Avenatti. Michael Avenatti, thank you very much. He's out there saving the <laughs> Look, country. Don Meacham says he may be the savior of the republic. You are something of a folk hero now. I owe Michael Avenatti an apology. I've been saying enough already, Michael. I've seen you everywhere. What do you have left to say? I was wrong, brother. You have a lot to say. I uh, am just dying to hear what you think because people all like you i'm the only person right here donald trump fears more than robert miller we think you guys are the tip of the spear that's going to take down donald trump right. michael avenatti's a beast okay that's true and he, he's a beast he's a beast i hand it to yeah. her and i hand it to michael avenatti but he has a great bigger calling here that being a lawyer is minimal compared to what he's doing no one has talked tougher directly to Donald Trump on TV than Michael Avenatti. And Donald Trump is afraid to mention his name. That's fascinating. Donald Trump is terrified of Michael Avenatti. Now, he this Trump a run for his money more than anybody <laughs> else, Michael Avenatti. An existential threat to the Trump presidency. The Democrats could learn something for you. You are messing with Trump a lot more than they are. He has no doubt created sheer 
panic in Donald Trump's very fragile mind. Michael Avenatti is laying down the law as guest co-host. And is he really thinking about running for president? Uh, one reason why I'm taking you seriously as a contender is because of your presence on cable news. You look at the field of Democrats right now, and Avenatti's the one who stands out. If they decide they value a fighter most, yes. people would be foolish to underestimate Michael yeah. Avenatti. I have always said that they need a fighter. Look, I mean, we're going to continue to use the media. I think we've used it with great success. All of my sexual fantasies involve handcuffs. And now there's a lot of sort of look at the media. They're disgusting. People like Brian Stelter, as you heard, you know, saying, oh, you're going to run for office. You're going to be the next president over on NBC, just for the record, because a lot of people are like, oh, she went to NBC because she wanted to let her liberal freak flag fly. Absolutely not. If you ever watch me on NBC, I did the news the same way as I did it on Fox. That's something that always stuck in my craw. People thought I changed. No, I didn't. I just went softer. But when it came to my politics coverage, I was exactly the same as I'd always been. And this was a good example of it. And here is a sample for you of his interview on my show. So why hasn't she returned the money? We offered to return the money two weeks I ago. I know, but she didn't. No, but we offered to return the money. So just do it. For, well, uh, we may do that. We why wouldn't she? That. Why would Stormy Daniels be leading the charge on whether, whether that payment violated the election law? Because, and, and I mean, this is the honest to God truth. This is a principled woman at this point. She wants the truth. She wants the truth. Now, be... now they're laughing at you. No. She wanted the dough, and now she wants to keep the dough while violating no, the agreement, no, she doesn't want which, to keep... whether you like Michael Cohen or Donald Trump or not, doesn't seem fair to them. Megan, she doesn't want to keep the dough. We've offered to return the dough. What's stopping you? It was two weeks you? ago. It was but two weeks ago. It's very simple. You take out the piece of paper, and you write $130,000, and then you mail it. And then... He, he attacked me um, later because I went after his stupid client, Julie Swetnick, who he then represented against Brett Kavanaugh. Remember that? Uh, he went at, she's the one who was completely making up her allegations about seeing Brett Kavanaugh go into rape rooms. The woman was totally not credible. And I did a long segment pointing out why. All her past problems. She'd been in trouble in prior jobs for lying. And I mean, I went on and on and on, on and on and on and talked about how her claims had fallen apart on national television. When you look at this woman's history, she misled for a living. I mean, she just had systemic problems in her past. And I went after her and I went after Avenatti and he attacked me and I attacked him right back. And there, there it went, right? So if you're paying attention, his problems were staring you in the face, but most of the media wasn't. And it's just yet another example of how you cannot trust these people, the media, when the commentator, the person they're promoting is saying anything that would reflect poorly on pe President Trump or in today's day and age, the MAGA crowd in general, uh, or even it's expanded to the non-woke, the Republican crowd, what have you. You know that by now to maintain your healthy dose of skepticism. But this is just the latest example uh, and one I'm sure Avenatti will try to wrap around him for some sort of <laughs> some sort of comfort of the golden days in his career as he spends time in, in cell block 14. And that is what we call Sound Up. Now, back to Chris in one minute. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about was another Chrissy, Chrissy Teigen. There's been, <laughs> oh, there's yeah. been this ongoing debate, I, don't, I think in a lot of conservative circles, and we've certainly had it on this show, about her kind of cancellation. 
Uh, I mean, she, look, she's married to John Legend. She, she's got plenty of success and money and so on. She, Chris Deegan's going to be 100 percent fine. But yeah. she lost a couple of endorsement situations with, like, I think, Target and so on because it came out that she's an Internet troll bully of young women going through hard times. This is her thing. <laughs> the woman who wanted to cancel everybody turns out is a is a massive, mean bully. And she can't wiggle out of it. She she denied the the most recent accusation by some guy who worked with her on Project Runway. She said he faked her DMs, but all the others she admits. Wow. And I was like, oh, there's really no dispute. And there's been a debate about whether the right should be pushing to cancel people because it was really Candace Owens yes. who took aim at her and outed her and sort of stayed on it. And Nicole Arbor, who's also very funny, she had she went on Candace's show and they had a debate. Like Nicole's like we shouldn't become what we loathe, cancelers. And Candace was like, she kind of used the line from the left, which is this isn't about cancel culture. It's about accountability culture. That's what the left says every time they cancel somebody. The way I saw it was, I don't like this. I, I don't like cancel culture, but we're losing this battle by just sitting back saying, stop doing that. And the only way we're going to win is if we start getting our hands dirty and saying it's on. Okay. We don't want to live like this, but if you're going to force us to, let's go. We'll play by your yeah. rules. Your people are going to go too. Yes, I, I agree with you 100 percent. Like in a perfect world. No, it shouldn't come to this. But like Chrissy Teigen, ugh, she's so disgusting. And she just has gotten so many chances over the years. People were trying to to let this bullying problem be known like for years now. And it took several attempts. But finally, it stuck and, uh, and and it stuck. Oh, my God, I'm losing it. I need coffee. <laughs> Did you um, also have a, a big <laughs> martini last night? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Every night. Ooh. And, um, it just took so many attempts. And that's the thing is like, she has a PR team. She's got so many people helping her. Like anytime some bad press would come out about her. And this is what I've learned about celebrities. It's like, they never deny or refute the claims. They just create new news to put on top of top, to put on top of it, to like push down the bad stuff they don't like in the search very results. Trumpy. That's very Trumpy. <laughs> yeah. And I just like, I don't know. I don't think her miscarriage was real. Like, I think she's done a lot of stuff. What? Like, stop it. I don't know. I don't know. It's Well, I will say I saw you get blowback for you had sent out a tweet kind of taking issue with her sending out the grieving photograph of her like in the hospital bed when she found out she miscarried. Yeah, that, I, see, like, that's what's I have so to say, It made me uncomfortable. I, I, I felt uncomfortable when I saw the photo. I understand, you know, I've, I've had a miscarriage, too. Although, unlike Chrissy Teigen, I didn't make it public. Um, and I certainly wouldn't have ever dreamed of sending out a photograph of me crying in the moment. I don't know. It was celebrated. Yeah. Made me uncomfortable. That's the part of which which makes it suspect. Like if if that's what really most people if and my mom had two miscarriages. So it's like it, most people, they just kind of grieve. It's, it's one thing if that happens to you and a month later you come out with like a Vanity Fair spread and you're talking about it like that makes more sense. But to but to like have it and then you're you're bringing your head, your photographer with you or you're calling them in right away. Like, come on, you got to capture this. It's like Make sure you get this tear rolling down my cheek. Oh, you mm. didn't get it. Let's let's put it back with an eyedropper. Like I just think it's it's too much, and everything about her her image is so carefully constructed. And uh, you know, every time she goes to the bathroom, she puts out a press release. So, mm -hmm. and she's she's somebody who was all about canceling and going after people. Um, it just you know nobody yeah. she, she was not well, under those like, same so she standards. wants she wants sympathy right which is obviously you send that out because you want people to 
you know, it, it, and people are like, oh, she's shining a light on miscarriage. It's like, well, miscarriage isn't something you can't talk about. What do you what do you, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it's just it tends to be something that's very private that that women go through with their husbands or their boyfriends. And, and no, most of us wouldn't have, would never dream of just sharing it with the world. It's not for public consumption, but OK, fine. I mean, I thought Meghan McCain did a long article on it and Meghan Markle did a long. I don't know. To me, those two is like you do you. But for me, I, that would I would never do that. Um, but Chrissy does everything online. And so she puts out this image of her like the grieving mom and the grief and the, the wonderful supportive wife. And the, and behind the scenes, she's sticking knives in young women who are going through real struggles like that. Courtney Stodden did. Who, exactly. Who was married to a much older man and wound up be, realizing she was non-binary i can't remember what exactly what but she doesn't she goes by they now mm-hmm. anyway she's a hypocrite oh yeah she's so yeah but people came out with all these screenshots over the years of her just being like yeah kill yourself like not even in a funny way and i think over the years she's tried to maybe tell people oh she was being funny it's like chrissy you're not a comedian these aren't even these aren't jokes they're not even joke premises like no, you're just a cruel individual and you're trying to backpedal. That's mm-hmm. why she, I think that it makes sense for why she, you know, deleted like thousands and thousands of tweets last summer. It's because she had a lot of dirty laundry to hide or dirty well, tweets. She didn't get them know? all. She didn't get them <laughs> no. all. No. Can I ask you about the Q thing? Oh, yeah, sure. Like okay. I. Because you had, you had sent out a tweet kind of directed at Chrissy Teigen and you, I think you ended it with like hashtag Q. And then everybody said you're part of QAnon. So what was oh that about? Oh, my God. Yeah. Like this was when I used this website called Social Blade. And I was using it mostly to kind of like check on other comedians to see because it shows you like Twitter analy- analytics or like any other social media, too. So I would use hmm. it to see like, ooh, who has bought followers? Could you see you can see like a sharp spike and you can tell oh, by wait. looking at the charts like, who? yeah, who has bought followers? Or who has deleted? It is so fascinating, Megan. Like I highly recommend oh. it because, like, I'm people. What's it called again? Social. Uh, social blade. Okay. Keep going. And uh, and I would use it to just just to see like, oh, well, comics have kind of been like inflated by like you know whatever Comedy Central or whoever. Like they've just been propped up. They've had followers bought for them or they bought. Uh, and then I would also see like who's deleted a bunch of tweets, like usually before somebody goes on like an SNL, there's like a, a period before where you see a lot of tweets being deleted um, mm. and you can go, OK, this is interesting. They deleted a whole slew of tweets before doing this show or getting this special. Um, so I had checked Chrissy Teigen's because I was like, yes, she's a little suspect. I don't know. Like, I don't know what's going on with her. Like, I, th- I feel like maybe she's deleted some tweets, you know. Because people would show screenshots like with all this bull- before, you know, she had accountability for any of this bullying. And then I, I checked her and it showed that she had like very recently deleted 28,000 tweets. And I was like, that's significant. That's like that's a lot. That was How like maybe she tweet. Yeah, that was like maybe a third or a fourth of her total tweets ever. And she's like this darling of Twitter. She's like the self-proclaimed mayor of Twitter. I'm like, nobody deletes that many tweets unless they're trying to hide something. Um, so I was like, this is very curious. So I just tweeted out like, oh, some celebrities have been very busy since uh, Ghislaine Maxwell was arrested. Like Chrissy Teigen, why did you because there had been rumors of her like association you know, with Epstein and and being on like the flight logs. And I was like, okay, it's hearsay. And so I was like, okay, Christy, like, why did you delete all these tweets? So then I just did a bunch of trending hashtags just to see like if I could poke 
poke the nest a little bit. Like, I don't know, just because I thought it was interesting because I'm like, that's a ton of tweets. And I couldn't believe it because I was recording a podcast. And then when I was done, my boyfriend was like, she responded. I was like, what? Because I was like, little old unverified me. Uh, how did she even see it? You know? And sure enough, she responded. She was like, no, I didn't delete 28,000. I deleted 60,000 tweets because of people like you. Da, da, da. Like she was very triggered by what I said. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. Like, I'm afraid for, I deleted these tweets because I'm afraid for my family. And now fast forward to, you know, July, 2021, we see she deleted oh, them because she didn't want to get, you know, she didn't oh, get in trouble for all this bullying. And, mm. and so of course, like, I didn't realize there were so many people who had been keeping tabs on Chris Teigen through the years. And they had all these screenshots of these horrible tweets, you know, like creepy tweets where she was like, oh yeah, I'm watching these like little girls and at, on toddlers and TRs. Like I like watching them do the splits or, or whatever these tweets were like, you can still find them. They're still what? out there. Yes. She, th- this were, I think this was back in like 2011, 2012, probably when she thought like nobody was watching her Twitter before she really blew up. I should note that she did. She she denies that she knew Jeffrey Epstein at all. And apparently there's zero evidence that she ever had any actual connection okay. to him or was ever on the plane and all that. But the toddlers and tiaras t- tweet, I'm just you know looking back at the history now. She said uh, this is per the Daily Mail in 2020. I actually deleted 60,000 tweets because I cannot effing stand you idiots anymore. And I'm worried for my family finding me talking about toddlers and tiaras in 2013 and thinking you're some sort of effing operative. So she's obviously trying to defend those some of those tweets about, you know, her comments on the girls. Um, Yeah. So I get I see now what went on. So she people found her weird tweets and kind Mm -hmm. of piled on and then she deleted a bunch of tweets and then people felt it was even more strange. And uh, and then you you got sort of under the target because you you tweeted out hashtag save the children hashtag Q. So you're not part of. QAnon. That was no, trolling, no. And and also because like I am very passionate, like Twitter has such a huge like child porn prog- problem. So that's like something that really affects me, too, um, that I care deeply about. I've talked to um, Eliza Blue, who is, you know, she helps victims of, of sex and human trafficking. And so I think because that was like coming out on Twitter, I was like, oh, this is also something I have a lot of feelings about like I just don't think you should be at all even a little bit creepy when it comes to kids kids yeah Yeah. and 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 that's that's a perfect way to discredit somebody is being like oh they're they're with QAnon if somebody voted for Trump and and they're kind of trying to poke the status quo an easy thing to say is like oh they're they're with Q that's a quick way to discredit somebody I think and I think that's why that got thrown at me a lot I confess I don't totally understand Q I I really don't I don't I was either. shocked at a dinner party to when my friend said she was like into it. And I was like, no, eh, you know, I I had been ripping on it, to be honest. And then she was like, you know, a lot of smart people are into it. And I was like, what do you mean? And then it became clear she was one of them. And I was like, oh, I don't know. there's a lot <laughs> Jack, of crazy please, yeah. shit that comes out of Q for sure. So something you said earlier, I wanted to pick up on. Um, you said something like my my feminist mold and talked about, you know, how you used to be a liberal Democrat. And I wondered if you think it, other than like folks who grow up in Texas or, you know, I don't know, the real deep South, I feel like almost every woman I know, except for, you know, like a small collection, maybe, maybe very religious, very Christian people, they're, they're molded. They go after young girls and sort of insist that they be liberal Democrats. Like the whole system is set up 
to make you a liberal Democrat, to reward thinking mm-hmm. that's liberal Democrat, even before now with the K through 12 nonsense in schools. It's just been set up this way for a long time. And girls are pleasers. And I yep. think a lot of folks wind up thinking they're a liberal Democrat, even though they might not be, you know, like they it's just pushed on them by by society. Oh, absolutely. It's like, for me, it kind of started in college, like this idea, like, well, your parents are spending all this money for you to have this college education. So, you know, you, it's, you have to go get a job. Like you can't like the idea that you would maybe, and a lot of girls like, you know, would meet their husbands in college and they ultimately wouldn't work. And that is, was just so looked down upon, uh, like that you were somehow less smart or, you know, yeah, that you were just basically like wasting your parents' money if you decided to just be, a, oh, being a mom was like a, a fate worse than death. Like, ugh, really? Like, that's the best you can do? Reproduce? Right, like you've given up. So, so looked down on. And now I feel like so many women who were kind of raised in that mold, like through college, like they're in their like late 30s and 40s and they're like, oh man, like I'm, I feel like I'm lucky because I found comedy and that gave me a lot if I hadn't I definitely would be like angry right now like oh man like this whole system basically convinced me not to have a family to hate men to not need men um it's like it's like it's a big trick I don't know and Mm -hmm. and you kind of you're conditioned to talk shit about any woman who wants to stay not work and just raise a family and have kids and it's it's I don't know it's I feel like the fog is kind of lifting on that for a lot of women they get they get in their heads too. Like even the women who choose to stay home and and raise families, uh, so many of the ones I know in New York feel guilty about it, you know, feel like somehow they need to project something else to in particular their daughters, you know, like, but I used to, I used to work outside the home, right? Mom has this exciting thing going on. It's like, I feel it makes me sad because it's like, why are you doing that? You don't have to do that. Just own it, live it, love it, you know, celebrate it so that your kid then gets the message. This is totally cool. This is a great choice, too. Yeah, you shouldn't be uh, shaming people for that. Because my mom was uh, she was a stay at home mom. She got a job when I was in like first grade. But I, I wish that she kind of had more hobbies and had more passions um, outside the home, because when we all grew up and like moved out, like I felt like there was a big loss for her. Like she really was just pulling everybody to like, you know, live the next town over or live in town. And, and it was like a lot of pressure to kind of like fill the, this big emotional need that she had. So I, I wish that my mom, you know, had more going on or like, Mm. you know, a passion other than raising children, which is fine, but like you should have a plan for when they eventually move out. Mm, That's true. That is true. Otherwise you're looking at a sad, sad day. I know. (laughs) Uh, I worry about that now, honestly, and I I have something going on professionally, but I'm still like your mom. I'm like good little boys and girls never leave their mommies. That's Aww. written in the rule book. <laughs> it's somewhere in the Bible. I'm gonna find it. And um, we, yeah, like if I had the energy, I'd homeschool them. I want them to be with me. I don't want them to go Aww. off to college. I want them to you know get married and stay in the, the next town. And I'm kind of worried that I have three. So what if they don't settle in the same town? And then I. I can't just go live next door. You know, Doug and I are going to have to be like a traveling circus, just tracking them down all over the country unless I can convince them to stay in the Northeast. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, just like just like love your kids, you know, like I'm and I'm sure you're a great mom. Um, It's but yeah, that's probably the worst thing is to feel like pressure to be your parents kind of everything. And you can't really like live your life. I don't care. (laughs) 
<laughs> I remember being in the <laughs> like, elevator at Fox with Stossel. Oh. I love John Stossel. And um, he's like, uh, you know, I'm like, well, what are you up to today? And he's like, well, you know, I'm taking my daughter off to med school. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. And he's like, no, it's not. He goes, oh. they leave you in the end. That's how this ends. They leave. Uh. I'm like, oh, my God. He's like, they don't <laughs> reveal that to you when they market parenthood, but it ends in ruination and despair. Like, oh. oh, that's sweet. No, I'm in <laughs> denial. Now, um, there is one child who I've heard you, <laughs> I, don't, I haven't heard you take aim at her, but I've heard you imitate her in an amazing way. Can we talk for a minute about Greta Turnberg? Oh, Greta. <laughs> yeah, she's like, <laughs> what is she, 18 now? Of her. Uh, yeah, she's got to be 18 by now, right? Yeah, she was another one. Like, I, I think I'm just inspired by unstable women. Um, and I just, I don't know, I feel like she was kind of, you. her parents kind of like took advantage of her. Like, I think she was definitely some kind of a puppet. Like, ask the average kid, like, are they, they're probably not really focused on the environment unless their parents kind of convince them that they are. Mm-hmm. Most kids are like, they want to have friends and they want their crusts off their sandwiches. And that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. But she's she's been activated. And I don't know, you you tell me because I when I watched that video, I was like, my God, there's so much anger, right? She's so offended at everything. Like she's yeah, why, why is why is she so angry? Like, I, I think it's because like she's being used as a, as a puppet <laughs> for a cause that she like may or may not fully understand or believe in. And it's like when she says like, oh, you've robbed me of my childhood. It's like maybe you should be telling that to your parents. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's her whole speech, like at the UN, it's just like, it's, I think she's just upset. Nobody will sit with her at lunch. I think that's You've what gotta it's do about. It. I've got to hear your, your impression <laughs> of her. It's so good. It's dead on. Nobody will sit with me at lunch. One boy tried to cut my braid and I said, that's all I have. I hide, I hide candy in there. <laughs> Someone tried to tell me that the boats I use to get to these meetings take up more gas than just flying. I said, how tell you? <laughs> I don't know. I feel recently. like that's another person who you're supposed to love and you're not allowed to criticize at all. And it's like, well, I mean, she was held up even in my daughter's school as like, this is an example of what a strong young woman looks like. And yes, okay. I it, Activism and taking, you know, standing up for what you believe in. I like that in general. Like, I, I don't have a problem with young women or boys who decide to do that. But of course, it's always leftist causes that they choose, right? Like they're not celebrating somebody who's out there at the March for Life. as a 15 year old well-spoken you know articulator of the cause and saying yeah right on you know the the young lila rose didn't get a lot of positive media coverage it's so easy if you want to get any kid involved in something political like just tell them (laughs) they don't have to show up to school they'll be on board they probably won't care whatever it is oh i don't have to go to school this sounds good sign me up for the protest don't leave me now we got more coming up in 60 seconds researching you, I read that you said you feel a kinship with with women who are in porn. How how so? Is it porn stars or or strippers? I can't remember. <laughs> I think I think maybe porn stars. I, I think I do feel a kinship with them because with porn stars and comedians, there's kind of like this like stigma over you that you're, you know, you could never really like live a normal life. And you're kind of like, in a sense, like an outcast. Um, there is like a certain type of guy, I think that would like never date a female comic and, and, you know, 
probably lots of guys who would never really settle down with a with a female porn star either. And but it's also it's kind of freeing in a way because we're not really our jobs. Uh, we're not really bound by like the usual constraints. Like you kind of can speak your mind. Um, it's kind of like, you know, porn stars and comics like have a lot of kind of like street sense and street smarts. And like, you know, we like know people pretty well. We're both like pretty observant. We're both in a sense, like in customer service <laughs> in a way, but <laughs> I guess, yeah, I don't, point. I don't have to bleach my butthole for what I do. Thank oh God. Oh my God. <laughs> no, no one should do that. That's not safe. No. <laughs> um, but you know, talk to your doctor. Um, yeah. When I was younger back in my, I don't know, it was law school days or whatever. Um, I got dragged to some strip clubs over the years, uh, you know, professional functions where you just go along to get along. And it was funny because all I kept wanting to do was an intervention for all the girls who were up there. Like, sweetheart, Aww. you don't have to do this. I got ideas for you. I'm going to open up a restaurant for you. And then I realized like, well, that's my own judgment, right? Like why, why assume they don't want to be doing it? Maybe there are women who want to celebrate their own bodies, who love feeling sexy, who get up there and say like, to me, this is, this is a form of power and they don't need me to go rescue them. True. And, um, as I've gotten older, I've, I've had that opinion more so Megan, like, Oh, like you don't have to be doing this, but you know, I don't think it's their plan to do it for, you know, longer than they need to. And yeah, if, and no one should be forced into it. Like if, if you feel empowered by it and you feel strong, then yeah, then go for it. And like, definitely make sure you're like saving your money and like, you know, get a money manager. <laughs> That's what I've mm. done. I want to go to strip clubs and be like, do you guys have accountants? Like, are you all, are you saving for the future? Listen to me. <laughs> All in singles. Yeah. So I went to, um, I went, I had to go through uh, a bunch of strip clubs after the Duke lacrosse fake rape case. I was covering it as a journalist in 2005, 2006. And the woman who was making the accusations against the three Duke lacrosse players was a stripper. And we were trying to track her down and track down people who knew her. So we were going through these strip clubs in Durham, North Carolina, my, my photog, my producer and I, and then uh, we went into this one club and and we're like trying to look like we're just there, you know, to, as patrons. And he goes, are you press? I'm like, what? How'd you know? He's like, oh, it's obvious. And my man. producer and the and the photographer are like, it's you. They go, we're their bread and butter. You're you're the tell. I'm like, am I the tell? The guy's like, yeah. I go, too bad. And then we get into this discussion about, I'm like, I could be, I could be here to apply for a job. You don't know I'm Yeah, press. totally. And uh, he's like, uh, we got in discussion about what my stripper name would be. <laughs> and then I asked the guy for a suggestion and he said, uh, first he goes sugar. And then I, and I'm like, what, what do you mean? And he goes, confectioner sugar in <laughs> my full name, wow. the, the like funny. whitest, pastiest <laughs> sugar. I think my stripper name would be something that kind of sounds fancy, but it's not like something like pubic zirconia. I don't know. That's, that was not a good moment for me to be sipping <laughs> my water. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. Wasn't it supposed to be your the street you grew up on and your first pet? Oh, right. right. We're not supposed to say that on the air, though. Not, you're not, don't give that information up because that's how people Oh, right. Because that's hackable. Yeah. That Just fish pick, is like, long your, dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> I had your, a fish. Uh, that was my first pet. Uh, was it? 
Yeah, it was a fish. I won it at a carnival. And then I had two gerbils and I came home from school one day in fifth grade. And my mom was like, uh, they were, I guess there were two girls and one had like eaten or attacked the other one. Mm-hmm. And I, to this day, I still don't know if that's really what happened because I didn't see the body. It just was, <laughs> I just came gerbils back. Gerbils are dark. Gerbils are dark. I don't think we talk about that enough. I think they, they're a little <laughs> bit malicious. They have a plan. They eat their babies. My brother used to have gerbils. He kept them in these like fish tanks in his room and they eat their little purple babies. Sorry, but it's disgusting and it happens. And here's another thing as as his younger sister, he's five years older. I wasn't allowed in his room. I wasn't allowed to touch the gerbils. I wasn't. And they were named like Fresca and and (laughs) Choo Choo and Santa Claus and Edward, which was my dad's name. I don't know if he liked that. So of course I sneaked in and did play with the gerbils. And one time I was like five, I think my brother was 10. I sneaked in there and I picked up one of the gerbils by the tail, the way I saw my brother do. And the tail fell off. <gasps> oh, the no! Gerbil, the gerbil <laughs> was little tailless. His round bottom was running around the tank without a tail. I was oh holding God. the tail. Do you have gerbil like, leprosy? Like, I don't know. Oh how God. did that happen? I didn't. I oh. all. So I threw the tail in the garbage can and <laughs> covered it up with a bunch of stuff. And oh, I no. went downstairs and I was like, Mom, I want to go to bed right now. My mom said, Megan, it's seven o'clock. I said, I don't care. I want to go to bed right now. I turned around. I went upstairs and I heard my mom say, what'd she do? Oh, <laughs> they no. knew. And my brother came home. He was so mad. And for years, I lived with the shame of this, of this attack that I had inadvertently launched on the innocent little fresca. Oh, then no. I find out, Chrissy, it's a thing. Gerbils shed their tails. I was innocent. Wow. All this all this time you've been living with that shame. Right. Who knows all these the years, damage I caused? All these years in my you own could have been playing. <laughs> you could have been playing pin the tail on the donkey with no shame all these years. <laughs> <laughs> right. Why are they asking you to play that? Why are they looking at me? Why do they think I would <laughs> right, do but, well? <laughs> why do they think I know where it goes? We <laughs> in the garbage? Yeah, yeah. I pinned it on the we, garbage. We all have childhood trauma. Some of us work it out uh, on the air as talking heads and some of us work it out uh, on the stage as comedians. And I love, I love that we have you doing it. Love. Closing question before we go. Why do you do your, your act in like a nice dress? I think it's oh. awesome. Something about it is very appealing, but I just wanted to know why. I think, and th- thank you for saying that because I got advice kind of early on in my career from a very well-known like kind of like comic legend. Um, I can't remember her name. <laughs> of course, I can't remember her name right now. She's a comic but... legend, but I have no idea who she is. <laughs> oh, Gladys. Her name's Gladys. Gladys Crap. What's her? There's the only Kravitz? one Gladys in comedy. In comedy, um, she used to run like a bunch of rooms. But she told me. I remember like I was a couple of years in. She's like, no, you really should be wearing like uh, pants and a jacket. She basically was describing like Ellen during the nineties is how I should dress. And I just was like, yeah, no, that doesn't feel good to me. Like I, I like to wear heels and a dress on stage because, and even I thought the pandemic would change me too, because I was like, I spent a lot of time in sweats. Um, but it hasn't. Cause I feel like kind of ready. Like when I put my heels on, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of this character. I'm a more mm. exaggerated, funny version of my usual self. Uh, so it makes me feel like, okay, I'm out. I'm ready. Like I'm bringing my best. And, you know, I just never, like, I felt like I never looked good in pants. <laughs> that was part of it mm-hmm. too. And I just feel like, you know, if I'm feeling like, feeling like dressed for a night out, like I kind of want 
the crowd to, it's really psychosomatic, I guess. Um, and another part of it was like, you know, when I was starting in comedy, like I always had a day job. I would always like, you know, leave my job at like five or six o'clock. I'd be like on the subway, putting more makeup on, you know, taking a cardigan off, like transforming on the way to the show. And I, and I figured out like, I have to wear something that can go from like work to the stage. Mm -hmm. And that was very Mrs. Maisel. Oh yeah. Yeah. It couldn't be jeans because you got to kind of dress up for your, for whatever day job I had. Um, but I really would just be kind of like transforming. I would be like changing shoes on the subway, like a lot of changing shoes. Um, but yeah, like, oh yeah, Mrs. Maisel would be great. I wish I had her costume budget, but yeah, I do Except like she's to not feel funny. Don't you think? Yeah, I, mean, I don't, she's not funny yeah, at all. No, she's a little, I love that show for the costumes and, Same. uh, yeah, it was and the beautiful. settings. Yes. But I, as, I enjoy the show and I love, I love Tony. Uh, is it Shalhoub? He's oh, so yeah, funny. He's so good. He's so good. I think I met him once. He's the nicest but guy. Stand up. The routines are not, I don't, I never laugh. No, if you give a, any, any regular comic, like her material, I it would get no response from the crowd. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, I dress up like that just to kind of feel like a lady kind of to feel like, like I'm bringing it, you know? Yes. I, I think there's something to be said for that. I mean, sometimes even when I haven't been on the air for a while, because, you know, nobody sees me when then I get, I, I get the bells and whistles, right? I get my hair done. I get my makeup on. I put on a nice outfit. I'm like, okay, there I am. Right. Grown up, the grown up version of me. Anyway, listen, I, I, when are you coming to Jersey? Oh, okay. Um, I'll be at Jinx, which is right on the boardwalk there at Point Pleasant Beach, uh, on July 20th. I don't know Jinx, but if I go, can I see you? Are you gonna of help course, me I'll get you comps. <laughs> yes, definitely. Yeah. Megan. Oh, nice. <laughs> that could be fun. I'll, I'll think of some sort of way to heckle you. I don't know. I know it'd be like, I'll try. <laughs> I'll tee you up on Greta or doggy style. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> awesome. Listen, Chrissy, all the best to you. I wish you continued success. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm such a fan of yours. want to remind you that if you want to go see Chrissy uh, on, on tour, she's on this national tour, you can find out all her dates by going to C-H-R-I-S-S-I-E-M-A-Y-R.com. So it's I-E at the end of Chrissy, and it's there's no E or O in Mayer. M-A-Y-R.com. M-A-Y-R.com. Okay, so check it out. And last but not least, you can get The Megyn Kelly Show on Amazon now, on Amazon Music. Amazon's trying to make a bigger play in podcasting, Smart Move Amazon, and The Megan Kelly Show is available there. You can actually just make it super easy on yourself by saying, yo, Alexa, play Megan Kelly. Play The Megan Kelly Show. And uh, she will be a nice intermediary for all of us. Anyway, check it out. In the meantime, go ahead and subscribe to the show. Download the show. Give me a nice five-star rating and a good review. I'd love to hear from you. And we will talk on Wednesday. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. The Megan Kelly Show is a Devil May Care media production in collaboration with Red Seat Ventures. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? 
In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Self-monitor your blood pressure in four easy-to-remember steps. Self-monitoring is power. Visit managerbp.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, the American Heart Association, and the American Medical Association in partnership with the Office of Minority Health and Health Resources and Services Administration.